2: And thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together.
1: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Over the next 10 years, California is committed to pumping renewable energy, electricity to 33% of the state's total. That's a big jump from around 20% today, and will bring big changes for consumers, companies, and electric utilities. What's in store for individuals? How will smart meters and variable pricing affect households? What can companies expect to see in their energy bills? And how are electric utilities preparing for these changes? For the next hour, we'll discuss those and other energy issues with our live audience in San Francisco and three energy experts. Diane Grunick just ended a six-year term as a commissioner on the California Public Utilities Commission, Mark Duvall is Director of Electric Transportation and Storage at the Electric Power Research Institute, an industry association. And Ted Howes, until very recently, was an energy advisor with the consulting firm IDO. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, Diane Grunick, let's begin with you. Give us a big picture of how electricity is going to change in California over the next five or ten years. There's a lot going on in terms of the type of electricity, who's doing it, delivering it. What can we, paint us a broad picture for the next five years, what's going to, coming down the
0: pipe. Absolutely. Well, let me start off with the basics, which is we still will have the lights turning on, <laughs> that there is a great emphasis at every level to make sure that our Basic supply of power is reliable. As we move to a clean tech and a green economy, we still have to keep the basics in mind. But we've had, I had the honor of serving under Governor Schwarzenegger with our new governor, Jerry Brown. Um, We're going to continue to set the path on moving towards a clean economy. So let's start with what produces the power, the electricity. We already have a pretty good base of power. Um, that most of the power plants in the uh, California are natural gas. We are relying a bit on out-of-state coal, but we have a Renewable Portfolio Standard, or RPS, which our goal in California is by 2020, 33 percent, one-third of the electricity produced to serve Californians will come from renewable power. And we've been doing a very aggressive job in the last few years of permitting renewable power plants. We've authorized and are under construction three major new transmission lines to carry renewable power. So that's an effort that is actually well underway and I'm very optimistic about. Um, But you've got to think of there are other components to this. Energy efficiency is huge. We have the largest program in the country that's very successful, that's bringing in a lot of new innovative technologies, and then we're really looking at what else can you do to fill in the pieces, and these are some of the ideas we're going to be talking about today, which is something called distributed generation, Mm -hmm. which is people putting on their homes or on businesses or on the um, big box stores, solar panels right on the roof so that you can produce the solar power very nearby. Um, We have a lot of aggressive efforts going in those areas, and that's going to, I think, accelerate and continue. So you can think about the whole mix of electricity sources is changing. And then at the same time, we have these... um, really uh very aggressive and i think very necessary policies on climate change our state law ab32 was resoundingly um, reinforced and approved by the voters in november and so with that for example we've got aggressive policies to move into electric vehicles to electrify our transportation sector And with that, we're going to be looking at how do we set up charging stations for those electric vehicles? How do we set up rates for who has those vehicles, how they're going to pay for them? Um, What are we going to do about energy storage to really promote that? So I'm very, very optimistic about we've got a lot going on. We've got a lot of different policies. But they're actually all headed in the same direction of keeping California in the forefront of moving toward the clean economy.
1: Well, Mark Duvall, uh, Diane Grunick mentioned that consumers are starting to generate electricity. So for your members, the electric utilities, that means that their customers are now becoming suppliers or competitors. So what does that mean for electric utilities, that changing relationship?
3: It, it does change the nature of the relationship of the, the customer to the utility. So, for example, if you decide I'm going to go out and build a zero-net energy home, I'm going to put a lot of solar energy on the home. It doesn't mean you don't need the electric grid. It means, in fact, actually, you, you may even you could say you may even need it more because you'll generate a lot of electricity when the sun is shining. You'll put it back on the grid, and it will get used for other by other customers. And then at night, um, unless you have going to build a very sophisticated system that will be very expensive, you would just pull low cost energy back off the grid at night. So it does change your relationship. It means that you're you're really buying um, availability. Uh, and and capability rather than just paying for kilowatt hours. So it, it, we do have increased choice. I drove up here in a Chevy Volt on, on one charge. Couldn't find a charger to plug it into and still make the 8.30 deadline to get here. So, um, but... Uh, there's um, some
1: people from GM that are very happy that you can said that.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll not have to push it home, but um, <laughs> we do have increasing customer choice. The utility customer is naturally going to change, and in fact, in many cases, when we get together with the automotive industry, we actually talk about a shared customer, and sometimes we talk about a split customer, meaning what I need for my car as an electric customer might be different than what I need for my home. And I would say that also, if you are, are want to do renewable power as a customer choice, then that also creates different needs and different capabilities. The utility has to react in different ways to that.
1: Well, Ted House, you consult with different utilities, um, mm-hmm. and they're, they're generally not the most dynamic or innovative companies. <laughs> uh, I think that's fair to say.
4: Uh, no comment. <laughs>
1: are, are, are they ready for this kind of change this, in the customer relationship? They talk about... Rate payers, they don't talk about customers.
4: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of the utilities, the, the more forward-thinking ones, are starting to think about the rate payer as customer, and that for them is a big innovation. Um, and, and, and now they have to fulfill that promise, right? And I think that's probably the, the, the biggest missing piece. Um, I came from a, a long background in, in human-centered design. Let's, through ethnographic research, understand people's needs. And so when we start to look at engagement around electricity, it's really hard because fundamentally, in the end, What we're talking about is electrons. And so when we're talking about the smart grid thing. In the end, for the consumer, what are the additional benefits for them? What do they perceive? How will it let them lead their lives differently? How much will they actually want to engage in their electricity? And these are the kinds of things that utilities are are really struggling with. And I think oftentimes they're taking at it from fundamentally a technology-centered standpoint rather than a human-centered standpoint. And as they start to think about how to engage customers differently, they're going to bring in uh, they need to bring in different ways of thinking. They need to bring in different resources in terms of people. They need to bring in a whole different way of operating as a, as a generating facility. And one of the key issues of that, in that
1: change is customer data and, and how that customer data is collected and handled yeah. and, and who owns it. So let's talk a little bit about that because that, I think, gets to some of the key issues uh, in, in this change. Um, Commissioner Grunick, in California, who owns customer data regarding electricity?
0: The customer. It's actually quite clear that at the Public Utilities Commission, we issued a decision in December 2009, so just about a year ago, Mm -hmm. that set a very clear policy. The customer does own the data and that they are entitled to provide access to that information to third parties that they authorize. And this is actually... um, looked at nationally because there are not that many state commissions that have said clearly this is the policy. I personally think it's essential. I think it's one of the most important things that has to happen to get clear that this information can be provided because while the utilities are fundamentally um, critical to this uh, change we're undergoing, Mm -hmm. and I think that many of them are trying to transform themselves I personally believe the real innovation is going to come from the non-utility companies. Certainly that's what we've seen in the IT um, sector, where it was by providing access to uh, different technologies and directly to the customer, we saw the innovation. So I think this is one of the most important things that can happen from a government policy is to make available the information. But the flip side is our very significant privacy concerns and getting the details lined Mm -hmm. up to make sure that this information really is kept private except for what the customer authorizes or what the utility truly needs to run a reliable, safe system. Those are going to be really complex questions. Yeah.
1: Reminds me of, of any time people go to the doctor, there's these forms we fill out about information, our health care information. There's all this legal structure around how that information can be shared and mm-hmm. who can have it and w- with our consent, that sort of thing. It's one thing to have a policy that says customers own it, but it's another <laughs> thing to actually have that implemented. And technology companies say they're not getting access to that data. Um, Mark, you,
3: is that I'm, fair? That- right now I'm thinking if I can write to Google and ask them for a copy of my search data.
1: <laughs> okay. So
3: I, I I I guess that I think this will all work itself out, and um, you know we're gonna we're going to f- focus increasingly on the customer in the future. I mean, here's a here's a great little uh, trivia about electricity per kilowatt hour. Electricity has been getting cheaper throughout history, so mm-hmm. it's gotten cheaper and cheaper every year until a couple years ago, and it, and we've start we sort of hit the bottom. And it's going to start getting more expensive. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to get more expensive in terms of you know, $200 a barrel oil type more expensive. But it's going to start getting a little more expensive due to... Increased uh, requirements for you know around sustainability, renewable energy, mm-hmm. uh, more stringent emissions requirements, all of which could be pointed to as having a very good societal value.
1: But I just want to stay on the data thing. I mean, is it fair to say? Are you saying that utilities want to and will share the data, or is a Google comment meaning like will sh- utilities will share when Google shares?
3: Oh, I think that you. You have to look at the context of how the data is being shared and how it's being used. And, um, you know, as customers, we provide our data to techno- the same technology companies, and they use it for all kinds of ways that we're only tertiarily aware of. You know, we're, we're just barely aware of, or maybe not even aware of at all. Sure. And uh, when you look at a utility, and I would say if you want to go on the electric vehicle side, if you look at, uh, for example, OnStar, which provides electric vehicle services to the owners of electric ve- the GM electric vehicles, they have extreme privacy concerns where basically they may not want to give you data because you might betray your own privacy accidentally. So, And then it would come back to their brand. So I think it's a very complex issue.
1: Ted, how do electric utilities know what to do with this data? I mean, about customer information? Or are they trying to control it, and is that stifling innovation?
4: I would say I would agree with Dan in that I think a lot of the innovation that we're going to see is external to the utility. Um, we're going to see a lot of... Um, players come in that are going to basically disambiguate the utility, take on some of the value, um, and and that can only really get uh, enabled through the data becoming available to them. But I also think there are going to be increasing tools that aren't going to be in the utility's hands that will make data more available. So I think that we'll start to see, as we start to see uh, new devices, new tools in the home, maybe the utility won't even be involved. And a lot of companies, General
1: Electric, Google, Microsoft, are trying to get into, you know, try to sell us uh, smart thermostats and smart toasters that tell us how much energy is. Is that stuff really going to happen, or is that just kind of pie
4: in the Uh, sky? I think a lot of it's going to fall on deaf ears with consumers. Um, I don't think anybody really, a a few years ago, uh, and this is one of those mea culpa, Incidents in design, uh, we, we designed a, a, a refrigerator for a client that was Internet-enabled, and uh, I, I don't think, you know, I, I see that sort of theme returning. i always
1: wanted one of those.
4: And, and Yeah, exactly. I mean, when we really start to think about it, do people want their refrigerator to help them order milk? I mean, it's a, conceptually, it might be a great idea, but in reality, do we really need that? And in the end, when we think about the the price that we pay for electricity versus the, the benefits we get it 's one of the cheapest aspects of our of our lives, and, and I, I agree it 's getting more expensive, but still, what is it? Two to three percent of disposable income in terms of the the average american consumer it 's not a big deal for us, and we 're going to want to still do what we want to do in our lives. So whether it's uh, washing the dishes, whether it's doing our laundry, whether it's using our our, our appliances and the way we want to use them, I don't think that's going to fundamentally change. And if it is going to change, it's going to be something seamless in the background where it doesn't require active engagement and a lot of behavior change on the part of the consumer.
0: Can I step in? I'm going to take a little bit of a different view of that in that I think it's not going to be one thing or another thing. It's going to be different ways that this is going to happen. And right. it's going to be very confusing in some ways to many of us who have been involved in this for decades and we knew you know, exactly who had what roles. I think there are going to be some early adopters who can't wait to get their programmable thermostat with their advanced meter, with their chips and their appliances, who are going to be on their smartphone you know, every 15 minutes looking at it. And I will actually say, I was back in Washington, D.C. in December at an event and um, the chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, John Wellinghoff, and I hope he'll excuse me if I say this. I don't think it's private. He literally pr- uh, pulled out his smartphone and was able to show me in real time the electricity use going on in his home. <laughs> and there are going to be those early adopters who, who want to know that information and react to that. And that's going to help us start to think through how this is going to work. At the other end, there are going to be people who say we don't care at all, and to the extent that there can be technologies, companies that come in place that just make things happen automatically. Mm-hmm. That when you, if they have an electric vehicle, they plug it in at home, but the charging doesn't start till the evening, even if they've plugged it in at 6 o'clock, and it happens the charging at midnight when prices are lower, or they bought a new... Um, refrigerator. And again, its defrost cycle happens during the time when prices are lower. Mm -hmm. They don't need to worry about it. But I think then there's going to be a whole other area to think about. And that's what we call in this in the area, the building shell, the buildings that we live in. And this may happen, in fact, in the developing countries and in China more than in the United States, in places where there's a lot of buildings going on. I've i am seeing more innovation and more work being done in this area than in the last three decades, where there's a lot of technology development into how to build buildings smarter, so that from the very beginning, you have the systems working together, and they themselves are what we call self-healing in terms of really maximizing what are the different um, instruments, machines, uh, technologies that are plugged into the building to really minimize their use and to try to have it being used during what we call the um, times when electricity is cheaper and how to bring in the on-site renewables. So I think it's going to be a combination of a lot of different technologies coming in.
3: I I would just want to add really quickly to that that utilities will be very good at something you would like every utility customer in an area to do. So, for example, if you you want to have a a million electric vehicles in the Bay Area and you want to charge them mostly off-peak, only a small percentage of them will be early adopters that will have the smartphone and everything. So if you want everyone to be able to do something, a basic functionality, utilities are good. At, at. They will be good at implementing that through their smart metering system with the help of all these Silicon Valley companies and other clean tech companies we're talking about. But then... The others, will, there will always be people that want more, that want something different, that want something unique, and that's, that's clearly the third party you know, to provide that. That's clearly, you know, there will always be some new product, some new innovation, hopefully more useful than ordering milk when you're out, but uh, <laughs> I'm an optimist. <laughs>
1: uh, Mark Duvall is with the electric... Uh, Mark Duvall is with the electric... <laughs> Power. Power. Yeah, Power Research <laughs> Energy <laughs> Institute. Diane Grunick is a former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission. Um, we're talking about en- en- energy innovation. Do we have a regulatory structure that will enable us, uh, utilities, to-, to innovate, or is the regulatory structure in the U.S. stifling? You mentioned other <laughs> countries. Um, You know, China has a little more, less of a, you know, in some ways, perhaps there's more innovation in other countries because they don't have the regulation that we have.
0: Well, as a former commissioner, I would never say regulation is stifling.
1: (laughs) We'll get the other one. We'll get others to say.
0: (laughs) And um, China does have some benefits, a very strong central government, but it is also still in the process of developing a Mm -hmm. strong rule of law to be able to enforce regulations that... Come, come out. So it's it's a trade-off. We do have you know, a strong system of government in the United States that you go through a public process, you can get rules and policies adopted, you then have a way to check and see if they are um, enforced, and a pretty trans, uh, transparent system for knowing that. Um, I've spent the last several years in deep discussions with a lot of state officials around the country, and a few things. One is... Pretty much around the country, state officials, I think, are very interested in moving towards this clean economy. Um, They're uh, up to speed on a lot of the issues. They're not closing their eyes and saying this doesn't matter. But a lot of the regulation of electric utilities in the country happens at the state level, by state commissions like the one that I served on. We do have in the federal government both the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the Department of Energy, but their legal jurisdiction is limited to what we call the wholesale market, which tends to be more over the transmission lines and the power plants, not what we're talking about here, which is how our utilities are utilities going to interact with the customers, what's going to happen in the distribution grid when you plug in electric vehicles. And most of the rules in the state commissions were set up, to deal with the reality of a power plant system that evolved 100 years ago, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. and the types of issues we're dealing with now—who owns the data? What are you going to do about charging rates for electric vehicles when maybe only you know two, three percent of your residential customer base actually owns these vehicles? Are they going to pay for the cost, or are you going to spread them across all every all customers? Um, the policies and rules weren't set up to even think about these questions. So there's going to be a lot of innovation in state thinking, as well as innovation by the utilities, as well as innovation in the technology. Everybody's going to have to think about new ways of dealing with what were old, established, comfortable roles.
1: Let's get Mark, and then I want to ask Ted about Ooh. the investor side of this. Um, is regulation oppressive to the industry? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> i I'll comment on that in a roundabout way. Um, <laughs> look, we can always get into an argument on whether, you know, we have a very clean, very effective, very reliable electric system today throughout the country. California has a particularly clean system and has made some trade offs to do that, but that means go buy an electric vehicle, plug it in, for every gallon of gas you don't use, there's a measurable e- economic and environmental benefit to the state. Um, however, There is one example of regulation. Typically, traditional utilities, their their play in the electric system stops at the meter on the side of the house. Most of them don't go beyond that meter. So if you go and install an electric vehicle charger in your house today, you're gonna probably pay between $2,000 and $2,500 for that service. And there are utility pilot programs that have cut that cost in half, provably cut that cost in half. Yet in many areas, a utility will not be able to actually offer that service because it's behind the meter. And for many utilities, they might say, thank you for that regulation. We don't really want to go behind the meter. We just want to serve the meter, put in a smart metering system, give you hooks into it, go get whatever you want and do it. However, there are many cases where that does limit what they can do that could provide a customer benefit. Um, On the other hand, technology and regulation work hand in hand to deliver some of the the major environmental and efficiency improvements we've seen in the industry over the last twenty or thirty years. So, but what you both said is that a, a primary value in the
1: system is stability and reliability, and that's somewhat consi- same for investors. When you invest in electric utilities, you want a steady dividend, predictable return, not a lot of sizzle, not a lot of excitement. Uh, but can innovative companies take risk? in the capital markets, Ted Howes, and, 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 uh, or do, do the capital markets stifle innovation also in, in utilities?
4: Well, that's already happening. Um, I, I would say that people who invest in a utility, I mean, essentially, a utility is uh, an investment bank with a 40-year payback. Um, and, and, and so that, that it's evolved specifically to uh, have that stability to provide that reliable rate of return. Um, and, and I think that you know, when we start to look more, more broadly, you know we're talking about innovation within, within the utilities as well. You know, that's, that's a constraint for them, right? How much are their investors expecting them to be innovative organizations versus delivering the, the sort of baseline services that Mark was talking about? And then when we start to look at utilities in terms of the organization, they're also evolved for stability, right, in terms of the organization design, in terms of the people they hire. Um, and so I think all of that is starting to, starting to shift. And so the question is, do investors, will investors accept that shift within uh, a utility framework or not? Or will they look to uh, invest in, in, in riskier firms such as startups or new technology firms in order to, you know, take advantage of that risk or, or take that risk on for a higher rate of return?
1: But there are huge barriers to entry into the electrical. Most industries have to worry about... New companies jumping in, but in electricity, there because of the capital costs and regulation, you can't just say, "Hey, I think I'll start a you know new electric company." Uh, so, you know, how does that factor into the uh, the, the equation? The fact that, that the barriers to entry are preventing new entrants.
4: I think that's still evolving. When we look at investing uh, by VCs in in in, in clean technolo- technologies, is. They're starting to understand that level of capital uh, investment required, and it's fundamentally so different than where VCs have made their money, such as in the Internet boom. Um, and now they're struggling with, well, how do we keep these companies going? How do we get to the next stage of investment? And uh, that, that's an ongoing, ongoing question in, in terms of who the investors are, whether it's utilities, uh, whether it's private equity, whether it's um, uh, consumer-facing brands that pick them up. Um, through you know acquisitions, uh, that, that's still
3: uh, something that, that I'm seeing evolve. If you, if you want to have a fun time, you go to a. I was at a meeting that had several utilities. It was a clean tech meeting with several utilities, and it's always interesting to listen to the venture capital funded startups go, "Hey, we have this energy storage system and it works. Order a thousand from us." And, and we have, and they say, right. "Well, how many do you have?" I said, "Well, we have one, but it works. Take our word for it. <laughs> it works. Order, order a bunch of them." And and yep. it's a fundamentally different model. It's like, well, no, you have to prove that this works for five million people. Uh, first, and, and then we can start to look at it.
1: We hear that argument a lot, that people in, in energy in general, that, that the scale is so massive, that people who don't operate at that scale don't understand what it takes to sustain, achieve and sustain that scale. Much of the
3: innovation in the industry is transparent to us. Most of us will never visit a brand new $100 million substation and see all of the technology that they've put in there to ensure something very mundane on the other end, which is reliable right. energy.
0: And, and I think there's a learning curve going on that Um, certainly what we saw was that so many people who had been involved in the IT industry and in all the innovation that's gone on with the Internet did discover, I think it's a great thing, that there's this world called energy, there's this world called electricity. Trillions of dollars are flowing through this world. Um, There hasn't been much innovation or technology change in 100 years. That tells you there's a business opportunity for sure. But what we have been seeing is that Most of those folks, while they could be great on innovation because the whole regulatory structure, the utility structure, is extremely complex, didn't really appreciate that in order to make a business model succeed, um, it takes a whole lot of understanding of all these other arcane, very complex structures. Um, Or as I have said many times, you may have the best product in the world, But um, a state commission can kill your business plan overnight, and you won't even know that (laughs) unless you do start to understand this. So I'm still optimistic. I really do think that we're going into another cycle of understanding what's going on. But the reality is there's trillions of dollars being spent in this area. A lot of it is based on old, outdated technologies, very inefficient technologies. Mm -hmm. And somebody, some hundreds of people... Companies are going to figure out how to make a profit and make this better. Well, I think why, that's the way it's going to work. Why are trillions of dollars being spent on old technology? <laughs> <laughs> it was a risk adverse technology. Monopolies were set up. Um, it was a sleepy area. People didn't pay attention to it.
3: Carl Pope. Was what's, here. what's
0: your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, capital. You guys aren't. I Capital's mean, expensive. <laughs> Right? right, I mean, who, if anyone has a you know a couple billion dollars in capital sitting around, they can go build a brand new power plant, and we're seeing a tremendous amount of it. The the if you look at where we're adding resources now, if you look nationwide, the number number one and two uh, sources of new electricity in this country are brand new combined cycle natural gas plants and wind, and I think wind is maybe even contending for the lead on a capacity uh, on a capacity uh, measure. So, I mean, there, is, there, are, there are billions of dollars being invested in new, new solar plants, central station, as well as distributed. I mean, it's being, it's being spent. So a, a plant, I mean, it's very simple economics. A generating plant or some other piece of utility equipment will cease to operate when it no longer makes economic sense for it to do so. And that could come from new regulation. There are probably 50 to 100 Uh, 1,000 megawatts of coal plants that are kind of on the bubble right now, and that's mostly due to regulation. That's about a tenth of our generating, fleet. up to a tenth of our generating fleet. There are other assets that will be replaced because it's no longer economic to do so.
1: Mark Duvall is with the Electric Power Research Institute. We're also uh, discussing clean energy electricity with Diane Grunick, former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Ted Howes, a former partner at the design firm IDO. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, that investment in risk capital. When electricity utilities do try to innovate, they put in smart meters. It doesn't go well. There's a whole lot of mess and fuss about oh, you know, risking pub, you know,
3: ratepayers, and so. Well, I'm gonna let's define what goes well um, because uh- <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. he, he's gonna take the smart meter questions. Let's just yeah. be real correct. He's got them all. <laughs> Don't confuse
3: me with being smart. It's just a smart meter question. Um, is that. When you're putting in 5 million meters, um, and it's something that both Southern California and Pacific Gas and Electric have had to do, as well as other utilities, you're putting in 5 million meters, it is, to date, I would maintain more or less uh, an emerging or definitely maturing technology. Um, The companies that were supporting these efforts had no idea how to do it until they actually did it. So the utility as an important customer to help these companies realize how to scale from, one. hey, we have one meter working in a lab... And, and it, it communicates back, and it's smart. Okay, let's do five million. It's, in some cases, it was six thousand meters. Um, it was, it, at some points, I think it was six thousand meters a day in some of these areas. It's a lot. So let's I mean, they, they have, they have yeah. no dedicated spectrum. By the way, name the cell phone technology that was built with and used without dedicated spectrum. Um, so these are these are significant technological accomplishments, and I think to date the results are very encouraging. Yes, there are some hiccups. There are some there are some. There's some poor press around this subject, but I think ultimately it will come down to major questions of how do we use them, what was the economic case for smart metering, and by the way, you probably don't get there just by saying, well, they read themselves, uh, or that my my refrigerator can order milk, (laughs) or my electric vehicle will tell me when it needs to charge. You need to look at all the societal benefits as well as the direct economic uh, or financial advantages to the, the utility and the cu- utility customers, roll that all together to make the case for smart metering as well as other aspects of the smart grid. Mm-hmm.
1: Anyone else on smart meters?
3: Yeah, I mean,
4: I, I think what we're seeing is scaling technology like that is inordinately hard. And, and you see some test cases, and then all of a sudden we're going to get to scale. And a- as it happens, it's, it, the technology has worked pretty well, as expected certainly. But in terms of the the service design, that is the experience of the rollout, that was a a, a missing piece. And I I think we could have sensitized consumers a a little better in all cases around rolling out smart meters. Um, For example, I had a good friend who just had a a smart meter installed in in his home. And the only thing that happened at that moment where it's this great uh, touch point, where we don't have many touch points with the utility, pretty much just the bill, right? But here's this touch point. Somebody came by his home, put on a smart meter, left a door tag. The door tag had like um, clip power lines, cut trees, you know, a bunch of different things, and then other, and then below other it said installed smart meter, and then left the door tag and, and went away. Well, I mean, if, if that's the way we're, we're approaching it, there's a, there's a fundamental challenge to that, where you're, you're doing something that's really different, that's that's fundamentally changing people's relationship with how they can experience electricity, and the sole touchpoint is a door tag that says other smart meter, I think we're missing a big opportunity there. And so you know, perhaps we could have sensitized customers differently. Perhaps we could have given them additional tools um, to, to think about how uh, the, the smart meter will change their lives. And I, I think that was a, a big missed opportunity. Do you think, Ted House, that electric utilities can meet the
1: renewable electricity standard goals of third by 2020 that Diane Grunick mentioned and maintain the same business models and cultures that they have today?
4: Uh, I don't know in, in, in California, but I, I know in other other states, I, I think that's going to be a, a, a big challenge for them. And I think that you do have to start thinking about what the business model is for utility um, and, and start to enable competition in, in, in new ways. Um, The competitive landscape, when we start to look at deregulated states like like Texas, it becomes really complicated, too, from a consumer standpoint, which may actually uh, confuse the issue for them. You know, in Texas, you have some 80-odd consumer-facing utilities competing for business, and that just serves to confuse the customer rather than getting them on board. The other part, though, when we start to talk about renewables, particularly renewables like solar, is... Right now, the, the the customer experience around solar is is kind of complicated. And when you talk to people, when we were working on a big solar program, when you talk to people about solar in their homes, uh, you know, they, in, in terms of their mind map, it sort of sits somewhere between a home improvement and uh, energy independence. And when you look at the actual size of the spend, it sort of sits in the same scale as a kitchen remodel. And for most people, they would fundamentally rather have. Uh, uh, granite countertops, something they can share and show off with their friends and family rather than uh, a science fair project on the roof. Um, And and so we really have to start thinking about, you know, how does this connect with people? And I think there's some companies that are doing great things, like taking away the cost barrier to to solar, um, providing a richer experience in terms of seeing how the system works, providing iPhone apps, things like that. So it it, it does provide this richer customer experience, but I think if you're going to get there, you really need to figure out how to bring uh, consumers along.
0: And I, I'm just I think the relationship of the utility to the customer is is absolutely going to have to change fundamentally yeah. um, as we move towards our thirty-three percent renewable goal for California, because there's two ways it's going to change. One is we are building a lot of what we call utility scale renewable projects. These are are basically large power plants that are solar, Um, some geothermal and wind, but they run intermittently. In other words, like a baseload natural gas or even um, coal plant, you can run it, you know, 24-7. With these renewable resources, as everyone knows, it's when the sun shines, the wind blows, etc. So you have to think about what else you're using during that time period to firm up the power to make sure that people, when they turn on the light switch, the power comes on. That's going to require a lot of innovation and change at all different levels as we're starting to see how to provide those firming services, what's the, going to be the role of energy storage. And I think the utilities are going to have to change a great deal in thinking about how they're basically putting together that package. But the other part I think is absolutely going to happen to get to our 33% renewables is we are going to be having a lot of people putting solar on their roofs and their homes or on their businesses. I'm a strong energy efficiency proponent, so the first thing they want to do is make right. that building efficient. But after that, they will put it on, and they're, a lot of them are going to want to sell back into the system and make a bit of money that way. And again, how that relationship evolves with their utility, which we started off this program talking about, is going to change a lot.
1: Diane Grunick is a former commissioner at the California Public Utilities Commission. Uh, I'm one of those consumers. I have a science fair on my roof, and I go up there once in a while and lovingly clean the solar panels. Uh,
3: Do you have all energy-efficient lighting in your house?
1: I did that, no. I did the energy audit afterwards, which is backwards, is the way that you've told me I should do it. More
0: important than the lighting, and I know we're not really doing energy efficiency, but I can't resist, is do you have ceiling insulation in uh, <laughs> I had the garage cocked, and I don't know. I had an audit. Okay. Um, by your next We're not trying to put you on Greg. the spot,
4: Greg. By the time
0: you do your next show, not you yes. know today, please be able to say, I'm so back. happy I had the audit done.
1: <laughs> the audit was done. It's one thing to have the audit, then to do the work. Right. The point I want to get <laughs> is that people who have distributed solar on their roof, Mark Duvall, are uh, using the grid, buying from the grid, selling back to the grid. And at the end of the year, some of them are, if they're net zero, they're not paying the electrical utility any money. And so you think that people like that are a free rider. They're using the grid but not paying for it. That's a problem.
3: Well, first I'm going to see what my pathway to the exit is, but <laughs> that's probably going to have to change over time. That, that's exactly correct. If you want to make a big push, especially at a statewide yeah. level for zero net energy homes, or, in, or simply just encourage, because I would also argue that... The thing to do with solar, especially in this state, is eliminate the, the last 30 or 40 percent of your consumption and, and call it good. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, obviously it's diminishing returns at some point. But, but yes, the that the relationship absolutely has to change. You need something different. And in many cases, businesses already have this relationship with their utility. They pay time of use rates. They pay what we call peak demand charges, meaning if you have some... Machine that you turn on that dim, you know, dims the light in the entire city. So a mad scientist would pay very high peak demand charges to his utility, even though he might not use that much energy. Um, so that that relationship is for these distrib for generating customers will have to change. Mm-hmm. Mark Duvall
1: is with the Electric Power Research Institute. We're discussing clean energy at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are Diane Grunick, former commissioner with the California Public Utilities Commission, and Ted Howes, a former partner with IDO. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Let's talk about a couple things, consumer choice and pricing, and we'll get to audience questions. Uh, We mentioned pricing a little bit, but haven't really talked about uh, Mark, you said prices have, electrical prices have started to go up.
3: Creep uh, up is what I would <laughs> And is
1: that going to continue because renewables are going to be a bigger part of our electricity, that they're, it's going to cost more?
3: Yes, and that's both, that's both positive and negative. Electricity is going to get more expensive. Renewable energy costs more than fossil generation at this point in time. Um, and we generally think at EPRI are very smart energy people um, – generally think that is going to continue to be the case. However, projections show we are going to get a lot of renewable energy, and we're going to get it in population meccas like the Dakotas. So we're going to have to ship it through transmission lines, so folks like Diane have a big job ahead of them to figure out how to get, get that built. Um, but we're going to have lots of renewable power. And we need it because going forward, while uh, a combined cycle natural gas plant looks like a really good solution to a utility today, Natural gas is plentiful and relatively cheap. It might get you to about 2030 if you want to look long-term sustainability, but at you really need an increasing amount of what we would call low-carbon generation wind, solar, geothermal, other renewables that maybe we haven't dreamed up yet, nuclear advanced coal with carbon capture. These are the types of things that you have to have if you really want to get to 2050. And Diane Grunick,
1: uh, utility prices have been traditionally static. That's changing. Tell us about dynamic pricing and what we can expect on that front.
0: Um, Dynamic pricing is basically a a concept that your price that residential people pay and businesses pay changes as much as on an hourly basis depending upon how much it costs to generate the power as well as transmit it. Right now, for the most part, um, throughout the country, the residential rates are static. It's the same price, and in many ways, places in the country, it's the same price if you um, are running your um, washing machine 5 p.m. when it's much more expensive to generate power because so many people are um, using the power versus you run it at 6 a.m. in the morning. So what this concept is saying is that it does cost different um, pricing to produce electricity at different times of the day. Um, We have what are called peaking power plants, power plants that might be run only 50 hours a year. Am I correct that that's some of the really... um, Uh, least-used power plants, but the most expensive. But you have to have them available because when everybody comes home, turns on the air conditioning, starts to plug in their electric vehicles, you've got to have enough electricity that can flow over the grid to provide power so we don't have blackouts. That's very, very expensive power. So this concept that we're moving to is that, you know, we're going to charge people for the price of that very expensive power because, in theory, when they see that price for the optional loads that they have, instead of running their um, washing machine right then at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., they wait and do it at 9 o'clock at night. They're more likely to do it if they understand the price of power, or we will have automatic sensors built within the appliances that they automatically wait to run the load or whatever. And so what this dynamic pricing is talking about is buried within the rates that everybody pays will be these changes in the prices for the rates. And as I said, they might even change as much as an hour every single hour. In California, our rules are that our larger um, businesses have actually been on what we call time-of-use rates, where there are different prices in different periods, for a number of years quite quite successfully. We're now looking at, for the residential um, customers in the state and the small businesses to move them into that same sort of system. And we'll be doing some major rate changes in California over the next couple of years, um, probably some big changes going into effect in about two years in 2013. But under a new state law that passed, I think it was last year, we won't actually have all this dynamic pricing for until about 2020 in order, I think, to give us some time to really understand how these changes are going to work. But it is the world we're going to, that we're going to be moving into.
3: So a utility in Phoenix, so where it can get a little warm, um, uh, Salt River Project did this with their customers. They, they put their customers on a, a, a peak pricing plan and they gave them a little device that sat on their kitchen table or their kitchen counter and let them know what the price of electricity was. And it was incredibly successful. It was a very simple feedback mechanism. It cut I, I want to think it could cut 20% off of their peak demand in the middle of summer. And you're right. The system is designed for the absolute peak load that the uh, utilities anticipate. And as, the, as you climb toward that peak, the collective blood pressure at your utility is <laughs> increasing and increasing. And, and this was a way to get customers to turn off things really just for a couple hours. And, and it's actually, in my many cases, an improvement over time of use because time of use tends to be noon to 9 p.m. or 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. It tends to be these big blocks of time where your, where your plug-in hybrid won't charge, your electric vehicle won't charge, and your thing won't work. But maybe, ultimately, you may be able to, in many cases, you can just narrow it down to a couple hours. People cut out their demand. They get a big cost savings. It can work really well, but you have to implement it.
1: We're going to move shortly to audience questions. If you'd like to uh, ask a question of, of either one, I invite you to go uh, to... Uh, we'll start the line where Brandon is. Uh, you can bring the mic up. And then I uh, ask you to please, go, if you're on this side of the room, to go out the other side uh, so that um, the traffic doesn't cross this, this camera. Um, let's talk briefly about Texas. It's always fun to talk about Texas. Um, you know, they have lots of choices. Uh, are we going to see more choices on, in California where we get our energy from?
0: That's... Um called retail deregulation is what they have in texas where um you know you're an individual and here in california right now for the most part for example i'm a pg e customer that's who you know is providing me my power and the um flowing over the lines to come into my home we had deregulation in california about 10 years ago i'm sure many People remember that, and didn't that go was, so well. yeah. didn't work so well. Um, in order to come back to that system where instead of just having a choice of PG&E, I could have six other providers, which is what Texas has, and it has you know dozens and dozens of different providers, it would uh, require a change in California law. And I frankly don't think that our politicians are ready to enact that change because the memory of what happened under deregulation last time is still pretty darn vivid.
1: But cities are trying to do it. There could be at the municipal level some city choices, right? Or at least right. We,
0: we do have a law in California. It's called community choice aggregation. And um, there was a lot of publicity about it because PG&E ran an initiative um, last year where they tried to basically stop that choice from happening because Marin has been very active. But what it allows um, uh, to happen is a local government can basically uh, form a buying consortium on behalf of its residents and businesses and then um, go out and buy power for everybody within its um, jurisdiction who lives within the city and sell that power. So essentially, they're displacing the local utility in terms of buying the power and selling it to the customers.
1: Thank you. Uh, Yes, sir, let's have an audience question.
4: Good morning. Thank you for what you're saying. Uh, I'm Chuck Bellavia. I'm the CEO of a company, Electrodrive. So I like to think that I understand technology. I have had a smart meter on my house now for in excess of six months. I don't even know what this does. I don't know what I can do with this you posed the question that they've missed an opportunity. So my question is, what would you like to see the utilities do to educate people about the smart meters, and
3: what are we missing? I I would point out briefly, before I turn it over, is that you're not in the final implementation of the smart meter rollout if, if you live in this area. In other words, the first stage is to get the smart meters on people's houses and it measures your electricity consumption, and probably at 15-minute intervals relays that back to the utility, and also it's a, that data is available for you, and you can go on uh, the website and have a heart attack about how much energy you're using and... And, and, uh, and know, then go out and get your the, home on and get and, your
0: insulation put in, and you'll live happily ever after. You know,
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sell the kids because they're, you know, they're... <laughs> sell the TV and get rid of the family. Um, and... <laughs> Wow. And so later, more <laughs> options will be available, but they consume energy, you know, if they're going to be efficient <laughs> <laughs> about this. Um, uh, this
0: is not an official viewpoint of EPRI, incidentally. And Do No, your this, disclaimer. Is a personal, this is a personal
3: <laughs> viewpoint. You know, my, my wife and I commute to work because she also works at EPRI in the nuclear group, and we talk about how much heat we actually need to get to work because that cuts down on your electric range, and this is a topic of, you know, this, it, does have a, it does matter. So we reach <laughs> over and sneak down, and I turn down our heater, and... And uh, that doesn't work. The point is is that, is that you're not in the final stage of their rollout. There are, there are concepts out there like the Utility Home Area Network. There are other devices. Are, there are innovative companies out there providing, basically, what the customer interface to your smart metering capacity so that as we move forward in the future and you have things like dynamic pricing and requests for demand response and other things, you'll be able to more fully utilize the capabilities of that system.
0: And, and let me just real quickly say... One of the reasons why this whole area of smart meter is so confusing, there's many reasons why, but one is, is that um, you can think of there's the meter, and there's what's called the utility side of the meter and the customer side of the meter, and when the Public Utilities Commission that I sat on authorized ratepayer money to be spent to buy all these for the utilities to buy all these meters and install them. The business case that was used that the commission approved it under was that the vast majority of the savings were going to be on the utility side of the meter. In other words, that the utility would know if there's an outage in the neighborhood. Right now, without, without this advanced technology, the way the utility knows that there's an outage is somebody calls them up on the phone. They have somebody drive out in a truck, drive around the neighborhood, and start to figure out where the equipment goes down. This is a much more sophisticated way of doing it, and some might say a sensible way, that you've got the equipment out there. Those are all the reasons why actually it is what we call cost-effective to put this equipment in. But the vision is that we're going to have all this other stuff happening on the customer side, and where the great confusion has been is there was not a good enough job done of explaining, even though this piece of equipment showing up in your life, in your home... It's really being used to enhance the efficiency and operation of the larger electrical system.
1: Diane Grunick is a former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission. We're discussing electricity at Climate One. Next question, please.
0: Great, thank you panel. Holly Kaufman, my question to you is, what is the role that business, individual business people, uh, small businesses, large businesses, and the associations that represent them, what has been their role in helping shape these public policies? Uh, for example, in defeating Prop 23 in the innovative CPUC decisions? And what words of wisdom would you give to business people and the associations that represent them going forward to create the policy framework uh, they need to create the green economy? Diane, you're our policy person. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll say that. Um, Be involved. Educate yourself. You know, if, if it's a company, fight for your product just because the current policies and structures... Um, aren't supportive, that doesn't mean that's the way the world needs to be or should be. So, you know, get educated, figure out if you need to go talk to the um, um, legislature, if you need to be talking with commissions, uh, talk with the utility, but be proactive, understand what the rules are, and then, as I said, if you need to get them changed, you know, be a force to make the changes happen, because the changes will happen, I, I'm convinced.
3: And Put in electric vehicle chargers, <laughs> and then send me your address.
1: <laughs> and come to Climate One programs. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, please.
2: Hi, Lori Price. I'm a prophet at Cal State, East Bay. Uh, my question has to do with the California Energy Commission. I'm Wondering um, why it continues to approve construction of new fossil fuel power plants in the state, and many of them, some of them don't have backed technology, um, and they'll be around for 40 or 50 years. So to me, these seem kind of unnecessary, since conservation appears to be working to take down our energy consumption. And I'm wondering what you think should be the role of the California Energy Commission and, trying to implement AB 32.
1: Let's take the, the first one. Why are we still putting, Diane, you said that money's going into old technologies. Why is the state putting more money in fossil fuels? I think, I mean, even the Energy Commission, I've, we've had Chairman Douglas here, Chair Douglas here before saying there will be more natural gas, electricity, fire electricity in the state.
0: Mark um, I'll come right out that at my commission, the Public Utilities Commission, we had before us a major decision in December on whether to authorize um, another natural gas um, power plant that PG&E would enter into a contract for. Um, I dissented. It is a four-to-one decision. Um, It was, in my mind, under every level of analysis not needed, and I frankly thought it was the wrong thing to be doing to invest over a billion dollars in a natural gas power plant that I think is unneeded for the state. So I I think there's a legitimate question about are we really going to be continuing to approve new natural gas power plants at the same time we're saying we're doing the efficiency, that we're saying we're doing the renewables. I think that um, on some things you do say no to, and this in my mind was one we should have said no to. The question will probably come up again under our new governor, and we'll see what happens.
3: I I would say that utilities build natural gas plants because they feel in their best analysis that they need them. Um, uh, here's a little fact about wind. The more wind you build, in today's climate, the more natural gas capacity you need. So you have to, if you're, gonna, if you're going to set up your system to have a large amount of renewable wind or other intermittent resource, natural gas is generally the preferred way to back that resource up.
1: Because the wind blows at night, you need the gas there it, to fill it in the It can
3: blow or not blow any time it wants to. Um, so... Um, uh, and. Uh, it is, a, it, it is a highly variable. You can't turn it on. And you, and you don't want to turn it off because you're trying to meet that 33% RPS, so you don't want to spill any wind as well either. So they build them because they need them. In the future, things like bulk energy storage may be able to offset this somewhat, may be able to provide system stability without additional uh, fossil plants, but there, there are reasons why you need them. Next question, please.
2: Hi, my name is Jan Alfwegel and I live in Mill Valley, the famous Marin um, community that uh, established uh, Marin C- uh, Clean Energy. And I'm a 100% renewable customer of Marin Clean Energy. My question is um, I was th- based on the fact that I was very interested in your customer experience utility customer relationship comments. And so I wanted to hear what you had to say about um, the proposal with um, from Jared Huffman, uh, the Marin uh, County Assemblyman, um, to offer customers a choice between having the RF-based uh, smart meter versus um, a wired smart meter that would eliminate... Uh, Exposure to, to RF um, emissions. Um, right. I'd like so to radio know radio frequency. Radio or, frequency, right. right?
1: So smart meters. There's another way to do smart Wired meters. versus wireless. My, my
2: question, wireless. Is just two, has slight two parts. One, how will that help or, or not help the customer utility experience, and also how will that impact the utility business model?
4: Um, you know, it, it's an interesting question. I think that that you know, from a technology standpoint, there, there's research that demonstrates that. The RF from the smart meters has no implications for human health, um, and I think that research is legitimate. Um, I I think some of the concerns about it, um, you know, I I think they need to be handled in a a, a delicate way. I'm not sure that the legislative approach is is appropriate. Um, That can create a whole host of problems when you're trying to roll out this technology and then trying to integrate all the smart meters. Um, But could consumers have a choice of wireless or wired? They, they could, um, and, and that goes to whether or not the utility um, can can get rate recovery for doing that install. I mean, it's a significant cost difference when you're talking about a wired versus wireless meter. Yeah.
0: And the um, programs that were approved in California and um, specifically here for pg e assumed a rollout of all wireless technology. So I, I'll be clear, too. I have no idea what the cost would be if you instead said the program will be Every individual customer will choose do they want wireless or not, Um, and then the utility will install whichever one the customer wants. I don't even know if that's technologically feasible to basically have such a a mixture of different technologies and systems combining into a single integrated uh, structure. But I, I do know we don't have, I think, any cost estimates on what that might involve, other than it certainly would be more
3: costly. Very costly, very quickly. I will yeah. say that uh, understanding the potential health impacts of electromagnetic fields is incredibly important to utilities. Uh, I have a colleague down the hall who's had a four-decade career searching for EMF health impacts. And it's interesting. It's He's perfor- like he's searching for the needle in the haystack. You search and search and you study and study. And right now he's working full-time looking at, Re- looking and re-looking at the smart metering uh, issue, um, science will tell us in the end uh, whether there's something to be concerned about or not. And um, I think we have to pursue those scientific uh, evaluations. However, right now, to the best of our knowledge, these <coughs> things have been shown to be safe, and they meet all federal or they meet all requirements or regulation in this area. So if we maybe need to go back and look at regulation, that's a little bit different story. However, it, it does increase cost and complexity, and, um, and, and there, it is, a, it is a, in my mind, a technical question.
1: Some people would say there is science. I'm not qualified to say evaluate that science, but there are people who say there is science out there. It's, I think all people would agree more, more study. It's, it's not clear. Not, certainly not settled science. Next question, please.
0: Uh, Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Waters, and I work for a design-build solar firm, but I want to ask you a a devil's advocate question with regard to switching transportation to electricity. There are uh, writers out there that say that most people will charge their uh, cars or fleets will be charged at night, and that because that is the non-intermittent form of electricity, either coal or natural gas, that, in fact, uh, it'll be a dirtier form of electricity and perhaps dirtier even than uh, really clean-burning cars. Is there any weight to that argument, and what is the solution to
2: that
3: no. argument? There's no. no. There's no merit to that <laughs> argument whatsoever. No merit whatsoever. I spent, and I spent two years of my life studying this issue with the Natural Resources Defense Council just down the street, and um, naturally, they're tough taskmasters. So um, the issue here is that the utility industry faces a layered set of, of increasingly strict emission regulations. We're talking about criteria pollutants. so We're talking about uh, SOX and NOx and particulates and mercury and all the, the what we would call the toxics. And, uh, and those go down every year while the demand for electricity goes up every year. So essentially, every year you have to make more power with less total emissions. Cars are different. Your car, you can go out and buy... The largest SUV and drive it a million miles or you can go buy an electric vehicle and drive it one mile. They're certified the exact same way. There's no one saying, hey, you're driving your car too much. We need to, we need to, maybe you need to swap with this guy that has the electric vehicle over here. Um, so, so the issue is that the, the, the cleanest and most efficient natural gas vehicle is actually a plug-in vehicle charged from a natural gas power plant. So you're better off running that through the electric sector and charging it on your end and driving an electric car so natural gas is a good source of energy for electricity. solar. Vehicles. Isn't solar better than natural gas? Um,
2: but solar doesn't generate at night. But, yeah. but let, me, let me ask yeah. it a
0: little differently, which is um, Los Angeles. The Los Angeles <clears throat> Department of Water and Power, um, the majority of its baseload is out-of-state coal plants. Um, they are the plants that can run around the clock. If you have a lot of people in Los Angeles plugging in their cars you know where the charges are running between midnight and 2 a.m. aren't you going to have more power produced from coal plants that is coming onto yes, the system that, than you would have otherwise now i'm is, not now i'm not is, saying that
3: is still cleaner than a gasoline vehicle
0: but i'm that's what i'm saying as, as you may Nye, have to do the overall said, carbon calculation that, that, but you are increasing the use of coal plants as
3: Bill Nye the science guy said at the plug in 2000 uh, nine conference if we all stopped driving our gasoline cars and all drove electric vehicles and plugged them in and generated it from coal it would still be better and that that is technically and those cali- technically those true. calculations have
4: been done
0: even yes, for states where can, there's really
3: virtually can, no natural gas you can go or, to our website and download the report for free that, that shows that um, that we published with the natural resources defense council i would also add that we see very little we're not seeing much coal on the margin there's some there's going to be some coal on the margin for electric vehicles nationwide there will be coal in the charging mix. But it's hardly the dominant. It's hardly the dominant uh, generator. Even in, even electric- in states like West Virginia
4: generator. and folks like that? There, there mean- will be
3: some people that get their electricity from coal. But And, and from an air quality perspective, that's, that would still be cleaner than driving gasoline vehicles. From a CO2 perspective, you don't get that strong benefit just from coal. But from CO2, we're looking at all of We're looking at CO2 is a global issue; it's not a a regional issue. Air quality is a very specific regional issue. I can do something that's dirty over here and still have clean air where I live, and that, and so you have to account for regional air quality. But CO2 on a national scale, look at our mix today. Electric vehicles are cleaner. That relationship will improve over time.
2: Okay,
1: thanks. We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Mark Duvall, who's director of electric transportation and energy storage at the Electric Power Research Institute. Diane Grunick, former commissioner of the California Public Utilities Commission, and Ted Howes, a former partner at the design firm IDEO. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth
4: Thank Club. Thank you, Greg. Thank you.